It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Uh, yes. Log Talk Radio. Okay, I'll hit it again. It didn't like that. It just went around and stopped, and it did it again. Let's see how many times it's going to... There we go. <laughs> on the third try, you know, we're on the air. As much as that band rehearses, they ought to be able to start that. that Welcome to Peach State Pandemonium, a production brought to you by the GWH Radio Network, where we take you down memory lane for a look at professional wrestling the way it used to be, with conversations from those who paved the way. And now, the GWH Radio Network presents Peach State Pandemonium. And here he is, Michael Norris. Good evening, and welcome to Peach State Pandemonium for Thursday, September 1st, 2016, hurricane season. And uh, this is Michael Norris, along with Bobby Simmons, Jay West, and Mr. Hurricane himself, Jerry Oates. So so you guys haven't gotten any of it yet, Jerry? No, we, we've had a little rain, nothing... I mean, just nothing. I mean, it, but it looks uh, like it's going to come out of the Gulf and cross over. Yeah, so right over, right over on top of you. So you know, get Toto in the picnic basket and Kathy, and you guys get in the, in the storm cellar. I know it's uh, it's uh, it's scary. I'm telling you. Oh, are you uh, are they shutting the island down or? No, I'm going. No, they hadn't yet. I mean, I'm going in the morning. Uh, yeah. High tide will be at nine thirty, and I'll I'll leave a way full high tide. But I'm I'm assuming I can get down there. You know, I'm I'm assuming. Yeah. Well, you know there'll like be a, you know there'll be some idiots there, trying to be out there, Jerry. Oh yeah, trying to surf. <laughs> I guarantee you, they'll be out there surfing. You know that you know they think that you know they don't know about that undertow and that they said those waves are going to be brutal down there tomorrow. No. And that, that that place, I mean, it's going to flood. I mean, I mean, I know that. I mean, I, I I've just seen hard torrential rains and it floods. I mean, it's going to be it'll be a mess. They were talking about I I caught a bit of it on the news. They were talking about four to four to eight feet above normal. <laughs> Tampa's How already far? getting it. They're already getting flooded. I need to call my, my aunt down there and my cousin that lives down there. How far away from the there. beach do you live, Jerry? Fifteen miles. Oh, that's good. And across from me is the Wilmington River. Hey. But it's, I mean, there's no way it's going to come out of the bank there. It's just. You may have way. oceanfront property this time tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. And don't say no way. I remember it's been, you know, 20, 25 years ago, but the, the uh, river in Macon flooded the interstate, and that bridge is, you know, yeah, <laughs> 30 feet above the river. God, people that, people that don't remember that, we had caskets floating down the street. Yep, that was in 94. Oh, and, man, what a storm that was. 
and that changed the way they that that changed the way they had to seal caskets and put information in there on. Who oh yeah, they they actually they have the a. Yeah. This is, I mean, this information, everybody, you know, this is just something to file away. But, yeah, they, if you ever notice on a casket, on one end of the casket, there's a round, looks like a cap, and you unscrew it and pull it out, and it looks like a test tube. And they they passed the law that they have to do that now and include in that in that little test tube, there's a, there's a copy of, uh, of the uh, information of who's in the casket. Is that right? Yes, sir. Yes. That's the law. Because... Yeah, that's a law now because when they come out of the uh, during that storm in '94, when they come out of the when they were floating down the street, those that had been in the ground for so they had no idea who they were. They didn't oh, know where they come yeah, from. Yeah, I'm sure, you yeah. know. What a mess! What a mess! Yes. Hmm. Well, buddy, I end my prayers, man. I've been thinking about well, you, Dad, because what just watching the TV here that that's that's a serious little thing coming across there. But it's it's gonna really go to the west of us, but we still gonna get, you know. Yeah, they say the biggest part of the rain's always on the east side of the storm. So, Oof. well, I'm frightened just hearing about it. I'm well, telling it's, you, it's, 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 uh, I tell you, it's on pins and needles. Well, if you if you if you feel like evacuating, you got somewhere to stay. Bobby will be glad that. to put you up. Yes, sir. We got, I don't have much, but I got room. <laughs> Reasonable oh, rates. Oh, man. Yeah, if you happen to float by Jackson, Georgia, just throw the anchor out. and <laughs> Run up a flag. We'll come get you. Oh, hey. Well, an encore. This is for next week. <laughs> Welcome to Peach State Pandemonium, a production brought to you by the GWH Radio Network, where we take you down memory lane for a look at professional wrestling the way it used to be, with conversations (laughs) from those who paved the way. And now, the GWH Radio Network presents Peach State Pandemonium. We're paving the way again. We need a little pavement down there in South Georgia. uh, before I before I get our our guest on the line with us, uh, we, uh, as, as most everybody knows, we lost uh, Mr. Fuji this week, and uh, just wanted to uh, kind of tell a few stories about him and remember him. I never worked around F- Fuji. I know you guys did. Did you ever work with him, Jerry, in the ring? No, not that I know of. No. I never wrestled him, but I was in the ring with him a lot. Who did he? Who did he tag team with? I, you know, I, I'm thinking that he and Tanaka uh, came through Georgia together. He and Tanaka yeah. was the team for a while, but he he did a lot of singles, middle of the card. Uh, he was here at the same time that Gary Hart was here, and Brute Bernard, and uh, uh, Steve Clemens or Dudley Clemens, and uh, through whatever that that uh, group of fellows was. That's when he was here. He was leaving. He left here, if I remember correctly, and went to New York. Yeah. And uh, he had uh, he made the loop. Uh, he had he was living in a mobile home there in Jonesboro, and he had cleaned everything up on uh, on Friday and uh, was getting ready to you know was turning. He was leaving on Sunday. He had to work Saturday. He was leaving Sunday uh, or leaving Monday or something. I anyway, the story goes that. Uh, Brute and uh, Sir Dudley went over. They didn't have Columbus TV that Saturday, and they went over to his trailer and just trashed it, just, you know, pulled everything out and threw things around. 
And uh, he come home, and he was a he was a bad practical joker. And he found out who did it, and he invited him over for dinner on Sunday. You know, it was a farewell, going away, blah, blah, blah. And he barbecued a dog. Oh. And and fed him a dog. And then when, you know, they got through eating and everything, he, he produced the carcass and the head or whatever. But, uh, yeah, he was uh, – he was a he was a big practical joker. Well, yeah, that story that story's him. been going around for so long, and it's been so mixed up that the the somebody put on the internet that was talking about him passing away that he did that to Tanaka, and I'm thinking, no, I don't no, think he no, would he have done that to, to Tanaka. He did it to Brute Bernard and Steve Clemens. And, uh, he did it to Tanaka. He'd have never made it to New York. I was gonna yeah, say. you got that right. The only thing I and I put on there, I, the only thing I knew he ever did with Tanaka was uh, put pot in his uh, his chewing yeah, tobacco. He used to put he used to put he used to put pot in his uh, in his Copenhagen. <laughs> Cause every, Tanaka would go, yeah, he would go to sleep in the dressing room. He'd have his dog at his feet, and he'd be asleep in a chair. Mm. Yeah, a lot of people. I've heard stories that Fuji was hard to work with and hard to get. I never had any problem with him. He, he, uh, me and him always got along real well. Uh, you know, just my interaction with him. So I just, uh, I just hate to see anybody from our generation go because it's just one less, and that's right. Yeah, uh, that word that, that bothers me. And of course, and it has nothing to do with uh, wrestling. But and funny enough, they were the same age. I think they were both eighty-three. We also lost uh, Gene Wilder this week. Yes, yes, that was. You know, a lot of people had thought he had been uh, deceased for uh, a long period of time because he had been so inactive in the business for so many years. Right. And uh, you know, it, it it was a shock not only to find out that he had died, but also that, to find out that. He was still alive up until, you know, just a few days ago. But yeah, I my think understanding, he, has, he has been suffering with Alzheimer's or something for a while. So yes, that's, that's, that's correct. But uh, his family said he was still, you know, he he still recognized people, but, uh, you know, he just wasn't able to get around by himself and his everything else was deteriorating. But my understanding is that, uh, you know, he made a lot of, a lot of great movies, uh, but uh, that uh, after Gilda Radner passed away, that he just, uh, you know, lost his desire to to do a lot of work. He did write, uh, did some books, but uh, he didn't really, other than his contracts that he already had, that he just didn't care to, you know, go before the camera anymore. But yes, he, I laughed at so many of his movies. He was he was so great. Yeah, he did a lot of great things with Richard Pryor, but my favorite, and I know he did the Willy Wonka, or, but my favorite thing was him and Cleavon Little in Blazing Saddles. It was wonderful. Young Young Frankenstein was a pretty close second. Yeah, the thing the I thing think, where he did with the chess piece <laughs> in Blazing Saddles yeah. was just a great great little piece of film there. I, I think it's one of his lesser known ones, but uh, it was the beginning of his teaming with Richard Pryor, uh, I think my favorite movie of Gene Wilder is The Silver Streak. Yes, yeah, he made four movies, uh, uh, four movies with Pryor, I think. Uh, is Silver Streak the one where he came out of the bathroom in blackface? Yeah, no. Yeah, 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 yeah that's it, yeah. that's it. Um, he did, so they did Silver Streak together, uh, Stir Crazy, uh, 
they did two others, so yeah, four. Yep. Uh, see yep. no evil, hear no evil was one, and I can't remember the fourth one. But yeah, they did four together, and they 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 the best the first one they did was the best one, and then they kind of went downhill from there. Stir Crazy is, is great, but the other two not so. But Silver Streak to me, you know. It just had a lot of elements in it. It was kind of a takeoff on on Hitchcock, you know. Uh, and and the, the funniest thing about that is every time he kept getting thrown off the train, and he'd have to find some different way to get back <laughs> get back on the train. He'd no longer get get on it, and they'd be throwing him off again. <laughs> huh. uh, I think that that movie. Uh, had a lot of young men fall in love with Jill Clayburgh. Are you are you giving away some information there, Mike? Uh, yeah, I had a bit of a crush on. We she died, just died here within the last couple of years too, didn't she? Uh, I'm not sure. And she was another uh, one who was his had had some illness and had kind of just dropped off the face of the earth. And for a long time, she was in all kinds of movies. She did uh, um, semi-tough with uh, um, Burt Reynolds and Chris Christopherson. And I can't yeah. remember all the all the movies that, that Jill Clayburg was in. She did two or three others with uh, with Burt Reynolds, if I'm not mistaken. But but that movie was just that's always been my favorite uh, Gene Wilder movie. So what if, you hear the excitement, if you hear the excitement in my voice, uh, college football is back tonight, so I'm just sitting here. I was going to say Alabama plays their first game Saturday. Glued to the TV. Georgia Tech the, plays in Ireland Saturday morning at 7.30. Yay. So, you got to be up for that? Uh, I've set the record button. Uh, I don't know that I will be up for kickoff for that one. Of course, then I'm I just saying, be. Bobby. If uh, if you'd kept your season tickets, they might have let you go over there and watch that game. I didn't need season tickets. They would have let me go. <laughs> matter of fact, they sent me a letter wanting me to go. <laughs> oh, did they? Oh yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Here were the here were the uh, Wilder and Pryor movies: Silver Street, 1976; Stir Crazy, 1980, which I remember both of those very very well. Uh, that was, uh, and then their later movies, See No Evil, Hear No Evil, was 1989, and the last one was 1991. That was called Another You. So Another you, those were right. those were the four movies they made together. Yeah. And uh, while we're on sports, the uh, the Braves swept the uh, San Diego Padres at home for the first uh, sweep they've had at home this season. And uh, only the third all-season road and home. And they scored, let's see, 19, 26 runs in three games. I heard on the radio, I was listening to the radio coming home, they said it's the first time that a Braves team has scored more than five runs in three consecutive games since 1952 or 53. <clears throat> They uh, they're playing well. They are playing well. I hated it that they traded away Jeff Rancourt, but 
Maybe they'll bring him back next year. Who knows? Because they only traded him to Miami for the remainder of the season, and he's a free agent, so. Well, that may be good for him. It may make the play. He may slip in the back door of the playoffs there. I don't know. You know, I'm surprised that, uh, other than the weather, that, uh, that uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad Jerry had uh, two weeks to recoup because he was uh, pretty wound up by the time he left us two weeks ago. <laughs> I still not over that. When I called him the next day and told him the guy was in the mental ward in Augusta, he really loved that. <laughs> you know, the guys that went there should be in the mental ward. <laughs> Well, he is now ensconced in the jail in uh, in uh, Blake or not Blakely. What was the name well, of that Dudley, town? Is he in, is they got him in jail. Yeah, yeah. They they oh, really? they uh, they saw through his scam there, and the uh, the uh, doctors at the mental hospital said there wasn't nothing wrong with him. So they uh, sheriff's deputies went up there from Dudley and met him at the front door, coming out and <laughs> took oh, him right geez. over to jail. So I don't know if that's the that kind of jail in Dudley where where he can get the keys and let himself in and out like Mayberry or not. I don't know. But uh, well, he's probably got playing on, his next show. I want to say it's uh, they got him on sixty two or sixty three counts of passing bad checks. Holy crap! I think so. he needs a medal. He's the greatest <laughs> ever in the business. To, to have that many people, you're right. He's probably the best yeah, worker I mean, in the business I've ever had. You know, I was thinking that, uh, talking about a work. And there's probably some people that would say, oh, man, it was only professional wrestling, no big deal, you know. Uh, you know, so, you know. Uh, and they probably would have if it had, it just, it had he left it alone and just, you know, got the people up there and without money to pay them. But when he started writing those bad checks, especially yeah. the ones out of the checkbook that he stole from his mother. I wonder if she pressed <laughs> charges against him. Yeah, if he's, she ought to, but who knows? Well, I, I got another likely. question. Uh, this is a wrestling question, and I will be the first to admit I know nothing about the situation, but I just <clears throat> it's something I, I've got a little bit of just, you know. The deal with uh, Randy Orton and uh, Lesnar, where Lesnar yeah. elbowed him in the top of the head, and it took 20 staples to close it. Uh, is there anybody other than me from our generation that thinks if it had happened in our generation, somebody wouldn't have went to the dressing room and got a pistol and shot this guy? That's what I was thinking. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I saw I mean, Bill Bowman tell a guy one night, the guy said, I don't think I can work that kick. And Bowman said, if you don't, I'll get my pistol and I'll shoot you. <laughs> I mean, you know, that was just over something the guy didn't think he could do. And I just, I, for the life of me, I can't, and they said the guy just was smashed an elbow to the top of his head. I mean, I mean that's crazy. What? I mean, for what? I mean, I, I just, I don't know. I seen the, I seen a picture of the injury. I mean, it cracked the guy's skull. And I thought to myself, I said, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, somebody would have shot this guy in the dressing room. It, it, I just, you know, it it makes no sense. I, I, I don't know. 
I mean, I don't know. I don't know anything about it. I just it was just I can't, I can't understand how that. How of that, course, you, you can. Know. It makes no sense. It makes no, no sense. That's an awful hard blow with just an elbow to do that much damage. Yes, sir. I mean, it was intentional. I mean, there's no other, I don't know. Well, supposedly it was intentional, but Orton agreed to do it, which makes no sense to me either. I don't know. None of that up there makes any sense. So I don't. Look, I understand. I mean, I, I understand when we were selling our businesses real. I understand, and kayfabe was alive and well. I understand the need for a hard way across the top of the eye. I do. I really do. I do. Not that it was a great idea, but I do understand that. I mean, I, I, you know, I. <laughs> I'm I'm one of the nuts that agreed to let somebody punch me in the eye, you know, when it was when I, we felt it was justified and needed, and I, and I, they convinced me and I believed it, you know. And but, at the time, you knew you had two eyes, so what, you know, uh, you could, you know, what was the difference? It was only one, right? You know, well, you know, I mean, it was just right. it was part of what we did. But, sure. But in the top so of the head, head like that, that's, that's crazy. Some of y'all did. Yeah. Well, from the wrestling, smart. I just you know, from the Wrestling Observer newsletter this week, it says Orton did an interview and said his time away has reinvigorated him. So maybe that's why uh, that all came about. He was reinvigorated. So <laughs> I don't. I don't know about. I mean, I just. I think. He was probably closer to dying than he realized. I mean, I just that's, yeah. that's right at your brain, man. That's crazy. Ooh. Anyway, I, I you know, I feel better because I said it anyway that I think somebody should have shot him. But that's anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm on. I'm hoping this works. I'm gonna try and get uh, Jody Simon or Joe Malenko on the line with us. So uh, let me. Uh, let me try this out real quick. Hold on. Okay, we'll just kind of sit here and together again. There was an article in the the Atlanta Journal talking about how podcasts are replacing uh, regular radio shows and uh, that they're real big among millenniums that age but uh, I don't know if we've got any of those listening to us. But if at any we rate, we're we're on the cutting edge. Show, Do what, Jerry? We can't we can't even get the opening right. <laughs> no, yeah, no you know, but it, <laughs> you know, it's funny. I hit I hit it by accident right, the it, first it. time there, and it came on right away. You know, it's 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 got a mind of its own. You still fussing about the band? <laughs> I told you we ought to fire that band. Well, uh, got Jody Simon on the line with us, or Joe Malenko, Joe and uh, or Jody, whichever. Which do you prefer? I know back in our day that uh, the custom was that uh, you called, addressed people by their gimmick name or, or everything. So uh, you tell me what you prefer, Jody or or Joe. <laughs> Yeah, you can call me Jody. I I never really even had a gimmick. <laughs> my, my, gimmick my gimmick was that I had no gimmick. 
Yeah, I got you there. Well, anyway, uh, welcome to Peace State Pandemonium. Also on the line with us is uh, Bobby Simmons, Jerry Oates, and uh, Jay West. Uh, Jerry, of course, uh, wrestled all over the country, and uh, Bobby was a referee here in Georgia for many years and was also Jim Barnett's office manager, and uh, Jay West was... uh, ring announcer for Georgia Championship Wrestling for many years, uh, not only for the uh, TBS television show, but uh, several of the house shows. And I was just uh, one of the guys that came over on Saturday morning and uh, made everybody else look, took all those guys that I could really beat and, and let them, did jobs for them, you know. <laughs> but uh, welcome to the show, and uh, it's, it's great to have you on. Uh, I had thought about having you on last year when you were doing the uh the thing for uh at the Fort Hesley Army. How did that turn out? Uh we're still waiting to finalize the deal. Um we're going to at some point, hopefully over the next week, we're gonna decide on some piece of a wall in there and you know, it'll be pretty substantive in size. And then what we'll do is start mapping out what's gonna be on it. It'll be a uh so for all practical purposes, it'll, it'll, for all practical purposes, it'll be a hall of a wall of fame at one of the greatest venues in the South back in its day, and it'll commemorate those people who made that place great. You know, Eddie Graham and um, you know Dusty in his day, and my dad, along with Eddie. Uh, oh shoot, there's so many guys. Um, you know, Don Curtis, Hiro Matsuda, and then the list goes on. Bob Orton, Jerry, Jerry Oates' favorite Bob person, uh, Hans Schmidt. We need to make sure he gets a gets a special place on that wall. Yeah, we're uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna go we're gonna go through the list of guys that you know all sit there. I mean, you know, Gordon Soley is as the voice of championship wrestling from Florida. He's definitely got his place, and um, you know, there's just there's just a ton of great talent that was here at the time, all through the. All through the late fifties, the sixties, into the you know into the mid seventies, and just a little bit further than that. So it's a great well, that's territory. A, that's a that's a great thing you guys are doing down there, and and, and that building, absolutely. like you said, it's just an absolute an iconic building for you know professional wrestling in the uh, from the especially the sixties and seventies. Um, yeah, you know everybody everybody throws a lot of words around nowadays. It used to mean something. Icon used to mean something. Everything's an icon. I think I was an icon last week on Tuesday. <laughs> uh, I lost I lost icon I lost icon status on Wednesday though. Uh, but that building was but that building was iconic and not just for wrestling. If you followed anything around this area, it was the place that Kennedy spoke before he left for Dallas three days. Exactly. Uh, three days afterwards, it was it was where Martin Luther King was. It was where Elvis performed and and uh, Jim Morrison in the Doors and you know, the list goes on. I mean, Buddy Holly. It's it was. Everybody and anybody who ever meant anything in, you know, in, in the mainstream pop culture and and politics came through that place. It was a it was a funny place because it was well not funny and it was it was funny. Um, it was it was so small but yet held a decent number of people. No AC. You could smoke in the day. Um, it was racially divided, but everybody got along. Um, it was an amazing. It was an amazing venue. Yeah, I went to many shows there in in the early seventies, and and uh, I was there not long after 
Dusty made his baby face turn, and you know, for that building, it was in in the middle of the summer, hot, standing room only. They you know they used to stand on that one wall up upstairs, and uh, but he was in the main event. I think he was working with with Buddy Colt. And uh, uh, I just I just had lunch I just had lunch with Buddy last week on Friday. But then then. Buddy was already in the ring, and Dusty, you know, was delaying it, and the people were stomping their feet. And that place, I, I swear, I thought the building was going to cave in. And, and then he came out on the mezzanine and held up one arm, and the place just, I thought the roof was going to come off of it. You know, yeah. it was just unbelievable, the atmosphere in that place. And, and I don't know if you ever worked there. The only thing that place that I know of that ever came close um, was the Houston County Farm Center in Dothan, Alabama. I don't know if you ever worked there. Um, but uh, that was in another, you know, had that atmosphere, uh, even though it had a dirt floor because it was literally a farm center. They did uh, they did animal shows and, you know, uh, tractor pulls and all kind of things in that building, but that was another great building. And similar to the uh, armory in, in Tampa is it was no air conditioning. The only way they got a breeze through there, they had these big, huge roll-up doors. And uh, they they just seem to make it make it that much hotter. But uh, you know that's just there's a lot to be said for the atmosphere of what those buildings were like. And I'm, I know we all worked in in horrible buildings, and, but uh, some of them were real bad, and some of them were just just bad. <laughs> uh, we you know anybody anybody who came up through the ranks. Pay their dues in places. I worked in a tent in Why Mom out in the orange fields. Actually, I think my dad was a promoter, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, that the few times that I did uh, did work out there, he stiffed me. But, but I, he got away with it because he was my father, and I I did love him. Um, yeah. In fact, the last time that I worked out there, I worked out I worked against a guy by the name of Vern. This is a long time ago already. I worked against a guy, Big V, Vern Henderson. He played. He played he played ball for the NFL a little bit, I think. I'm not sure if he played for Kansas City or something like that. Really nice guy, but he, I ended up in the hospital that night. He was he was a little bit awkward. So for, for 25 bucks that I then got stiffed for, I ended up in the emergency room. <laughs> and, you know, I still do it all over again. Big, big uh, night. For huh? those that are listening to us that don't know, when Jody keeps missing his dad, his dad was uh, the great Boris Malenko. Uh, there again. Uh, if 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 there's an, the word icon fits anybody, it fits Boris Malenko, especially in Florida. Thank you. I Thank can you. still remember uh, as a kid uh, sitting mesmerized watching uh, him beat up a mattress on TV for uh, <laughs> that betting commercial that he did. That was uh, yeah for for Badcock Badcock mattress. The funniest the funniest thing about that is that there were a bunch of people looking for the original commercial. And nobody had seen it for years. I was in high school when it came out. I think it was 1972 or 73, somewhere around there. And, uh, you know, when you're in high school and your dad's on TV beating up a mattress, you take a lot of abuse. <laughs> that was, was – I, I lived with it. Um, and, the, and the mattress, not only did he beat up the mattress, but he did a job for the mattress. So, so it, was like insult, it was like insult to injury. And – so all these people were looking for this commercial, and I finally I said, look, let me you know let me see if I can find this thing. So I called I called Badcock 
the the furniture company, furniture slash mattress. And I got this lady, and she was supposed to get back to me. She never did, and I pursued her and trying to get something on the commercial for about two or three months. And finally, I called back, and I'm a little bit irritated. And I asked to speak to her, and the lady wasn't there. Another lady's there, and she answers the phone, and she says, um, "Look, if anybody can help you, it's me." And I said, "Okay." And she goes, "Yeah, I'm the granddaughter of whoever Mr. Badcock was." So I said, oh, that's pretty good. She goes, look, let me see what I can do, and I'll call you back as soon as I can. And literally about five minutes later, the phone rings, calls me back. She said, check your email. Um, she said, I don't know if the audio went through, but sure enough, the video was there, the audio went through, and uh, I, I ended up getting a copy of it. Brought back some great memories. It was, uh, And what was neat was is Gordon Soley was calling it. Calling it. Um, that little, you know, that little, it was in the ring down at um, the armory here in town where, she, where they used to, where they used to film TV, so you know, brought back a brought back a lot of memories of the day. That's fantastic. When, when was that done? Uh, again, I was in high school. I was probably a junior, you know, sophomore, junior kind of. So 72, 72 and it, or so. And it ran for pretty pretty good while. My dad made five hundred bucks for that, and I think it ran for like ten years. Gosh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they did. They did to him what my dad did to me and my mama. Yeah, it was a, uh, it was pretty amazing. I, I, you know, when you're when you're a kid and it's your dad and every anybody who grew up with any father of any, you know, of any notable stature or notoriety in the area, um, you know, you still look at your dad as your dad and. It's, it's who he is, right. and you grow up with him. And, you, and it's not really until later on in life when people come back around you and they say certain things, you truly understand the breadth and depth of who your dad was and the influence that he had in the area and how he impacted people's lives. I, I, I still, to this day, and we're talking, you know, my dad passed away. Um, and let me just point out, I just said that, let me just point out something, that today is the anniversary of his death. He's been, he's, uh, he's been gone for 22 years as of today. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. um, it was kind of, yeah, kind of a, kind of a coincidence, a, a nice coincidence that you guys asked me to be on. Um, so I'm not sure where where I was going with that, but he, um, you know, he to this day is mentioned to me constantly by people who come up to me and say, "Hey, I just want to let you know that when I was a kid, I used to go with my dad or my grandfather, and you know, it was the time that we spent together that was so special at the armory, sweating our balls off watching your dad." Yep. Yeah, he. Uh, when did do you know when he first came to Florida? Um, he came down. I think he came the first time in about sixty two, sixty two, sixty three. He came into town. He lived over on Clearwater Beach. He had a little place. had a little place on the beach, and then my mom and my brother and I came and spent. I want to say a couple months during the summer with him when he was there. Uh, then eventually we left and we traveled around the country. We came back, but when we were there at the time, we, so we so we get to the beach. My dad, my dad lived his life. He he lived for wrestling. He thrived. He loved the he loved the he loved the profession. He loved being in the business. It was everything, and that was that was his life life blood. It wasn't just his livelihood. It was it was his life. And uh, so, but everything else didn't matter. So my 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 dad would wear the same clothes for three or four days in a row. My dad would drive an old beat-up car. He didn't care about material things. 
Um, and this little place that he had had roaches, and he would stomp on the roaches. He would just leave them there. So I remember as a kid getting there, and my mom looking around going, Larry, what the hell is wrong with you? There were, there were like dead roaches across the entire floor of this place. Um, and that was, that, was, that, was part, that was probably the start of the demise of my dad's and my mom's marriage, because you don't leave dead roaches across the floor of a place for your family to come down to. Um, that, was also the, that was also the time that I decided that I was going to set a garage on fire behind the place where my dad was staying, and then he asked me who did it, and I told him it was some kid in the neighborhood, and he walked me all around the entire beaches of Clearwater trying to find this kid, although he knew from the beginning that there was no kid that I did it. <laughs> and um, I, ended up not getting, I ended up not getting this fishing rod that I was supposed to get for my birthday because I, I lied to him. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, and I, and I, that was the only garage I've ever set on fire, though. Well, that's good. That's a good thing you learned your yeah. lesson. Yeah. How, how old were you when you realized your father was Professor Boris Malenko? Um, okay, so, you know, my dad went through, my dad, my dad had multiple aliases. So when he was, when he was starting in the business, um, you know, he started as Larry Simon. He went. He became Larry Dugan. He was Crusher Dugan. Um, because of him being Jewish, he kind of played, kind of played to the Jewish thing. So he was Yussel the Muscle. That would be funny to somebody who's Jewish. Hopefully, that's funny to you guys. I don't know if any of you have any Jewish blood in you. So he was he was Yussel the Muscle. Then he became Otto von Krupp. It was when he became Otto von Krupp that he really kind of started to move up the ladder in the business and. You know, get noted as a guy who was a really good hand in the ring. You know, pretty good carpenter. Um, you know, he, uh, come on, who was the world champion at the time? Pat O'Connor. Yeah. He had some, you know, he had some world bouts and stuff like that around the country. He was working in Omaha, in Nebraska. He was working. We were in St. Joe, Missouri for a while. Um, how we got to know all the carnies back in the day, and I got to speak carny when I was like four. Uh, then you know, then he kind of settled in New York for a while, um, mostly again as as a Otto von Krupp. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I was in the dressing room with guys like obviously my dad, who was he was about two sixty five. He was about five ten and changed, about two sixty five. He was huge, built pretty well today for the day. It was him. It was Wahoo McDaniel's. It was um, uh, Bruno San Martino, um, Bobo Brazil. You know, I was I was a little kid in this dress room with these guys who now when you talk about them they're you know, they're they're, uh, they're men of legend right then you know then he made his way through the Carolinas and then down into uh, down into Florida well we were out in California came through the Carolinas down in Florida and then we really settled in here in 68 I think um, which Again, he had he had been here for a while previously. He had a run. I mean, he had a run with Eddie Graham, which was maybe you know some people say arguably, inarguably the one of the greatest feuds in all of wrestling, especially oh, territory. Lasted oh. probably on and off, more on and off, lasted better than ten years here. Um, you know, almost a bloodbath every time they climb in the ring. My dad, my dad was uh, pretty adept at getting blood, and Eddie with that. Blonde, you know, with his blonde locks, he had to bleed. So they did a lot of Russian chain matches and brass knuckle matches and cage matches and the whole nine yards, and they did it around the state, and they did it for a very long time, and they had a great run. Um, 
And then he went uh, up to Carolinas. Then he went up to Carolinas for a while, and you know, in and out of other places. Texas. And I, I'm assuming, of. and I, I have always assumed, going back into the in the early '60s when your dad and, and Graham were having those matches, that your dad pretty much invented the Russian chain match because I don't know of anybody doing it prior to that. Yeah, no, that was that was that was his deal. I mean, my, you know, my dad and and Carl Gotch, who was my wrestling coach for years, about seven years, I would train with Carl. You know, they would say the same thing all the time. And you know, and what's 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 uh, what's new is old. What's old is new. Nobody really, uh, very few people invent anything. Some uh, maybe my dad saw it somewhere, but he he kind of made it his own. Uh, in fact, he he had his own chain made for him and. Um, one of the referees in this territory, Frankie Reyes, who has a school with Fred Ottman, Tugboat, uh, who we all who we trained. Um, I think he has the, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, he has the original chain. Wow. wow. Probably got probably probably got a lot of remnants of my dad's bodily fluids on it. Well, it's funny that you mentioned, you know, everything being recycled. Do you did your dad ever tell you where he came up with the Malenko name or when he what made him decide to take that name? I think it was <laughs> I think it was McMahon who gave it to him or it may have been it may have been God's. Carl was a really good friend of his in the day. Um I don't to be honest with you, I mean my, my life is a blur, so I'm I'm not sure uh, Well the reason I'm asking is, is because there was a guy um he was from Buffalo originally. And uh your yeah, dad was heard. from uh, was from New York as well, wasn't he originally? He was from Jersey. Jersey, okay. Well, Frank Fozo was. Uh, I heard. Was he used the name the Great Malenko in uh, in in the mainly in Tennessee and the, the uh, Gulf Coast area, and then uh, a guy by the name of John Kearney who became best known as Ivan. Uh, what was his name? Ivan Kamaroff. He used the name Boris Malenko there again in the in the, the uh, mid to late 50s. So there was actually a, a great Malenko and a Boris Malenko. And a Boris Malenko. Yeah. And my dad, probably, my dad probably took it, put it together, and became the great Boris Malenko. Yeah. Um, as a kid, as a kid, I never, right now, I don't remember him ever saying, hey, um, I got this from somewhere. But, you know, again, it, it, if he did, he did, and he he used it pretty well here in the territory and around. around yeah, I was going to say he he made it his own. It's just like you know there were several spoilers before J- Don Jardine, but when you Jardine. mentioned the spoiler, yeah. Jardine is the spoiler. Uh, spoiler. This is guys that that have the most success with it is is the ones that uh, everybody remembers. And and your dad certainly. You were talking about his matches with Graham. I've got somewhere around here on on DVD. It's not very long. It's it's maybe a minute and a half, two minutes of uh, one of their chain matches. Of course, it's silent and it's, it's black and white, but um, I just... I'll I, tell you, everybody's, everybody's looked for stuff um, back in the day, and nobody's found anything. Cause I know that the tapes, I know that the... I know that Mike Graham, I guess, sold all the C, uh, CWF tapes onto McMahon. Right. Um, I had a bunch of tapes somewhere. I don't even know where they are anymore. And I was going to have somebody run through them and see if they converted over to digital and 
just never got it done. So very little, very little stuff exists from those days, which is a shame. It's, well, it's that way new. from all the territories because they reuse those tapes over and over again until they were worn out and then they pitched them. I mean, you know, the guys never thought about, you know, what this would mean. None of us ever thought that far ahead in the future because like no, Bobby's always said, we never thought it was going to end. It was business and those <laughs> yeah. tapes cost a lot of money. Yep. Uh, you know, I uh, I used to tell my dad, I mean, I used to tell my dad constantly, uh, Dad, you need to collect stuff. I have a, you know, when he, when he passed away, he had a box of stuff, and I went through it, and I gave it to my brother, and my brother went through it, he took some stuff. And I still have, um, I still have a box of his stuff. Now, when I go through it, what's in there is amazing. I mean, you know, it's, it's the history of pro wrestling for the last uh, 60 years. <laughs> but... But he did. He collected so so little of it. And I used to get on him all the time. So when I was on the road, I would make sure that I was some pictures. Especially, I I wrestle mostly in Japan because that's the only place that they understood me over. You know, I could wrestle in Japan and be as boring as I wanted to, and the Japanese people still appreciated it. Um, they didn't get up to go to the concession or or leave the arena. So I thought that was a plus. And. You know, I would take a lot of pictures when I was on the road, and all the guys would make fun of me. But then at the end of the tours, they'd be like, "Hey, uh, can I get a copy of that picture? You think I can get <laughs> one of those?" Um, so I at least I at least tried to do my best to chronicle things. And so nowadays with YouTube, there's I, every time I turn around, I'm finding somebody sending me a video saying, "Hey, you know, I found this of you," or sitting out there. So it's it's a different world, and there's a lot more than you know than there used to be. And I I wish my dad had. I wish my dad had collected more. I wish we had access to some of the stuff that was really, you know, that was prime. Um, he did, and I, and I have to find this because I have a copy of somewhere. He did have a, um, he did have a tape of the last match. You guys know Paul Bosch? Oh yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Paul, um, for those of you out in, you know, for the three of you listening to this out in wherever you are, um, <laughs> Paul. Well, now too. Now, to the the um, Paul Box was a promoter in Houston, and he was one of the few promoters that my dad used to talk about favorably. Uh, you know, the, it was the old adage: uh, "There's only two kinds of promoters," and I'll stop there. Paul was the third kind of promoter, and so my dad thought the world of him. And Paul's last Paul's last match as a as a fairly older gentleman was against my dad. Um, so. He was able. To, he he called Paul, and Paul sent him the tape. And he said, "This was you know, not too long before Paul died." He sent my dad the tape, and he sent he sent a DVD, and he sent a uh, letter to my dad. And I have that somewhere, and I need to find it. But you know, that was a uh, that's a pretty nice keepsake. I wish I again. I wish I had more of that stuff. Yeah, Bosch was one of the one of the rare ones that, that did keep a lot of his television tapes. In fact, it's all uh, the majority of it is now owned by. Uh, um, Bruce Tharp, and uh, he's oh, that's doing, right. yeah. He's yeah. doing uh, that uh, NWA classics. Uh, yeah, don't get um, me going. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I get you and Jerry going. Jerry, did you you the short amount of time that you spent down in Florida? Were you ever around Boris much, or did you ever wrestling? No, Ted was in Charlotte when uh, he was up there. I think his last time that was before I got to Charlotte. But uh, Ted was around him. I'm that was when he was up there with uh, with Edie, like seventy. Yeah, with Bill. 
eight. Seventy eight, I think it was. I got there later on and he had already he'd already gone from there. Gary, when'd you when did you start in the business? Uh, do, uh, sir, what did you say? When did you start the business? Where did I start? I started in Florida in 1970. I was in Japan with you and okay. Dean. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. I don't remember what year that was, but I enjoyed being with you guys, especially watching you guys. Y'all were unbelievable. It's, it's, it's yeah, I didn't, believe, like, I didn't believe anything we. I didn't believe anything we did either. <laughs> <laughs> no, you guys. No, you guys were just Thank unbelievable. You, uh, you know, I, I really enjoyed watching y'all. Thank but, you. Uh, <laughs> you no, saying you, that? You, makes, were, you saying that makes me think about. You saying that makes me think about getting on the bus with uh, Stan. Stan always. Stan always oh, took please. the first position on the bus when we get on the bus. So Hanson was up front. Oh yeah. And whenever we get yeah, on, he. Did. he, he my brother and I would get on, and he'd sit there, and he'd go, da 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 like circus music. <laughs> it's because he thought we were like circus people. And we were kind of small, so he made fun of that, too. Yeah. Yeah, that was... Uh, we had good, we had good was, times in Japan. Yeah, that was a lot of fun over there, especially with Joe Gucci, and, you know, he was such a... I love Joe. Great guy. Well, we, I mean, we, had, we had great... Yeah, we had great groups of people. Um, just the characters were unbelievable. No, you know, it you really got, was. Yeah, you, you got bull. I mean, the bulldogs. If you're on tour with the bulldogs, you're guaranteed to witness witness fifty things that the average person will never see one of in his life in his or her lifetime. Um, good, good, bad, or indifferent. Did you? Did you ever go for a Noki or just Baba? Um, I went, I went for Noki. I went for Baba mostly. I went for Noki. I went over for um, Fujiwara when he split off. Um, I mean, the first time I went, I went for UWF, which was the, which was the shoot work group that Carl started. Carl got me over there the very the first time. So I was with, um, I was with Maeda, Maeda Takeda, uh, Tiger Mask. At the time, Fujiwara um, and all those all those guys. Suzuki Funaki came in later when I was with Fujiwara. With, with Fujiwara, it was Fujiwara Gumi. It was myself and Ken Shamrock and um, a few other guys. And again, it was sort of it was the work it was a work shoot style that you know, went over went over pretty well there, and and eventually sort of morphed into you know the Japanese MMA efforts into Pancreas and uh, the organizations that became the shoot fight slash MMA organizations in Japan. So that was kind of neat. In fact, the worst, uh, Joel Deaton will tell you that the worst match either either one of us pretty much ever had was a match between myself and Ken Shamrock against Joel Deaton and Dick Slater. And, you know, you got, I mean, Deaton and Slater alone, just phenomenal. And then I, you know, I was, I was decent. And then you had Shamrock, and Ken. Yeah, we had we had maybe the worst tag match in all in in the history of professional wrestling. <laughs> Doug Doug Furness, Doug Furness, God rest his soul. Every time I would talk to him, because I would talk to him every few months, and as he approached the end of his life, we sort of reconnected and 
talked regularly, and I went. We spent some time together. I went to visit him uh, a couple times. Spent you know, spent some time riding bikes and doing shit around his house. And um, he would constantly remind me of that tag match. Yeah, he wouldn't <laughs> let me live that day. <laughs> Do you have any tapes? Yeah, it took it took it took a hundred good matches to make up for that really lousy tag match. Which you got to be amazed that you're gonna have a bad tag match if you're working against Joel and Dick Slater because. Dick was Dick was probably one of the best natural hands that came about when I saw him for the first time in you know the early seventies. I can think of one that may have been worse than that one. It was one that happened in Columbus, Georgia, in about nineteen seventy four oh. with uh, the Garvin brothers against uh, Jerry Oates and the McGuire twins. <laughs> Come on, man! Don't 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 steal my thunder. <laughs> it would, if, it's, if, if it's any worse than what this was You can have it I'll pay you <laughs> <laughs> Oh it was oh. Uh, Are you in Tampa now Joe Yeah Yeah I live in Tampa I'll, I'll, no, I'll, I mean, I'll, 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 What's the weather What's the weather doing for you What's the weather doing The weather right now is not that good Yeah in fact I was concerned that Maybe the connection would kind of fade in and out, or we'd have some problems. Um, they're anticipating some pretty severe weather. Well, not anticipating. It's here. It's going to get worse. Um, yeah, and Jerry, Jerry's in Savannah, so they're going to get the same thing. The rest of us are up here in Atlanta, and we'll get the uh, we'll get the tail end of the remnants of mainly the rain part of it. Yeah. Yeah. If you got, if you I guys never, float by worked. Jackson, Georgia, I told Jerry just throw an anchor out. I'll. Uh, I got plenty of room. <laughs> <laughs> I never worked Georgia. We did we did Savannah back in the day because for Mid Atlantic it was you know North South Carolina Virginia and then we'd come into Georgia and work Savannah. That was the only town we did, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. That's um, I don't correct. remember what day. We, I don't remember what day we would come in there, but that's the only place I ever worked when you know when I was up there for Mid Atlantic at, at the time. And, we, and I was just and we were, I was just in and out. Yeah, we would come here on Sundays, Lynn, out of Charlotte. Yep, that's right. Uh, Joe, I was looking at some uh, background on you, and uh, it says here that you uh, went to work for ECW in around uh, late 1994. What did you? Uh, how did you get there? Um, I flew from Tampa to. <laughs> That's not exactly what I meant, but uh... <laughs> yeah, uh, I was gonna drive, but it was a long haul. No, we, um, my brother. So the way this, so the way, so the way this really works is that, you know, my brother and I both wanted to be part of the business, but my brother wanted to be part of the business full time. So he was, uh, he was up at ECW for a little while. And, you know, he called me and said, hey, they want to do, you know, some tag team stuff. And so I went up and did a few tag team shots, but nothing major up there. I, you know, um, it just it just, it just, just wasn't me to be a full-time guy in the business. I had other had other things that I wanted to do. And, and, and it's not that I didn't love – I didn't love working. You know, there's nothing you – know, there's nothing better. You know, when you when, – when you – and anybody who's ever been in the ring knows this when – when things click, when, you know, when you got a great crowd, when when you got a hot crowd and things click and it all comes together the right way, um, there's nothing better. But for me, I just didn't want to do it full time. So my brother did, and we um, 
Um, uh, went up there, worked a few matches, and then he went up, and that's where he really. And I gotta, you know, I gotta give him credit. Well, I give him credit all the time. He's my brother. Um, he became he became a phenomenal hand himself. He was, uh, yeah, he was in the midst of a bunch of guys, Eddie Guerrero in particular, and some other guys who just stepped up their game, and they had match after match after match that so were just, you know, just stellar, you know, stellar showings of technical skill and being able to tell a great story and working a match the way that we used to work matches. Yeah, it's a lost art. There's very few of them that can do it. Yeah. I don't I don't know. I you know, when I was a kid when I was a kid I'd listen to the old timers and um I used to say that they had the case of the Eustas. You know, well, I used to do this, or this used to be this way, or this used to be great. And I swore to God that I would never do that. And of course, you you fall into it because that's just what you do. It, it's a rite of it's. I think it's a rite of passage. But um, there there is you know there is a level there is a level of truth to that. Yet in the same breath, I it's not like I watch it's not like I watch the different things that are out there now. I don't I don't really I don't really well. First of all, I don't watch. Uh, I don't want Vince's. I don't watch Vince's stuff. I, I, if I'm passing across the channel to go see something else, I may stop for you know five minutes or something. Um, the other products out there, very very little. But I do catch glimpses of different people who you know I'll hear people talking about or buddies of mine will say, hey, you need to see this guy. And there are there are talented people out there. Um, it's just again, it's 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 the used to there. There is yeah, a difference between and, and you're right there. They're very time, but the 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 focus is, and it's not the it's not the boys' fault. I mean, they're they're doing what yeah. what they're expected to do, but the the by the law start of it, I mean the the actual wrestling part. And and your brother, unfortunately, I've never uh, had the opportunity to see you work. I've heard a lot, um, and everything I've heard about your career is it's been stellar. But I've I've actually seen Dean work. And uh, that's it's, that's the lost art part of it is you know, uh, you know Dean reminds me a lot of guys like um, Les Thornton, Tony Charles, yep. you know the technical yep. type guys. And well, if you talk, I mean, if you talk to my brother Tony, Tony was a big influence on my brother. In fact, I used to, I used to wrestle legitimately with Tony. We'd go at it on the mat when I was a kid because he'd come up and he'd, you know, he knew Carl real well, and he'd come up and we'd work out. I'd work out with. Tony Charles and Bob Roop at the time, and a guy named George McCreary who worked here in Florida for a while. George yeah, was an interesting character. Yeah, we know about George. <laughs> so, so I don't know if you knew. I mean, if you knew George's pedigree, and I'm, if you knew yeah, George, exactly. I'm sure you knew that he was, I mean, he was he was he was national NCAA national champion, or he was mil- or army all army champion. Yeah, I mean, but I thought he I thought he won the NCCA, but maybe he didn't. But um, you know, he was a he was an accomplished amateur wrestler. Exactly. And you look at this guy, and he, you know, he he just looked like he was an average. He was a soft looking kind of nothing kind of looking guy. He came up to work, not work, but he came up to shoot. I mean, we wrestled in my dad's gym. Carl trained us, and people would come in and out. We had some of the best in the world come in and out because Carl had that kind of influence. You know, from from the Iron Sheik, Costa Vasiri at the time when he just came over, and he looked like a you know, Greek god before he discovered a variety of uh, substances. Um, 
<laughs> and and you know just just, <laughs> just a ton. You know, Lou Lou Lupez came through and Bob Roop and um, you know a lot of the guys out of Japan and other guys from Europe. Just just an amazing array of guys who were talented pro- professionals, but also amateurs. And George. George would do this thing where he would slide in, almost like a single leg dive, but he would slide in like he was sliding into the bases. And he would hook your leg, and then he'd kind of bring you around, and you'd go flat, and he'd be on top of you. And you knew he was going to do it because that's what he did, and you could barely stop him. I mean, he was just so freaking fast. And yet when you looked at him, you wouldn't expect that from him at all. And when Carl would get his hands on him, because <laughs> George, George didn't like to be hooked. You know, actually, they, you know, submission-style wrestling, they used to call guys hookers. Right. Um, mm-hmm. you, you didn't get upset about it. You were a hooker. You were actually proud to be a hooker. Um, you didn't make any money at it, but you were proud to be a hooker. <laughs> and and um, <laughs> and you know George, when Carl would put his hands on George, George wouldn't want to do it. So George would actually ru- crawl towards the edge of the mat. He'd start crawling under the mat, and I w- I would get hysterical laughing, and Carl didn't understand because Carl didn't have that kind of sense of humor. And he'd be looking at George like, "What the hell are you doing?" But you know, George didn't want to. George didn't want to take the pain. He was an amateur wrestler, and he didn't want to. Yeah, he didn't want to do submission style shit. Bobby can tell you a funny, funny story about my first, George McCreary. My, my first meeting with George McCreary, he started in Atlanta on a Saturday morning at the TV, and nobody had ever seen him. I didn't know who he was, and I was a referee. You know, I'm just, I'm just sitting in the dressing room. You know, I was a kid. He comes in, and Gary Hart tells him, "He says, George, you were glad you're here. Make yourself at home." And the guy, you know, he comes in, he's this little wiry guy, he's got this long beard, he had flip-flops on, he just looked, he looked like a bum. And he come in and he sat down, and when Gary told him to make himself at home, he opened his bag, and he started throwing his clothes everywhere. He had them hanging on lamps, he had them hanging on light fixtures, and he sat down in the chair and crossed his feet, and he goes, well, I feel at home now. <laughs> and that was my first introduction to him, and then I began to learn who he was and what he was. <laughs> Yeah, funny I, think guy. Up, I don't know for sure if, if you know, it's something that I heard. I, it's never been uh, corroborated or validated or verified, but I think he ended up making, like, wooden toys somewhere up in the mountains. Does anybody anybody know how where he ended up? I think he's no, no, I don't know. I lost track of him. Uh, I think I know uh, – I don't know if it was with Fuller before – uh, the split up there when your dad and Rope and Garvin all left. He either worked for your oh, dad's yeah. group or he worked for Fuller up in Knoxville, and that was the last time I uh, he didn't I work, know of him working. He didn't work. Yeah, he didn't work for us because I was up there at the time again in and out. Um, that was a heck of a crew. Well, that was a, that was a top notch crew. Yeah, it but was. George, George, George. I don't remember George up there with us because it was Rope. It was Rube, it was Garvin, it was my dad, um, it was... Orton Jr. Uh, it was Orton Jr., it was Randy, it was Macho, it was Randy, uh, Papo, Lanny was up there, myself. Um, yeah, I'm trying to remember who else. Ron Wright. Yeah, yeah, I think Ron Ron passed away a few months back, right? Just about a year now, now. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think who else, because I had some, some uh, I think I had some video of that, that group, too, and I can't remember who else. Was. Terry Gibbs was there, wasn't he? Yeah, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's when I bought. That's when I bought uh, Ron Garvin's truck from him, and I drove it back to Tampa. And about halfway back, it crapped out on me, middle of the oh. interstate. <laughs> Thank you, Ronnie. Thank you, Ronnie Garvin. Joe, <laughs> uh, uh, you, know, you you had mentioned that uh, there were other things that you wanted to do besides uh, pro wrestling. Was there anything specific uh, uh, that comes to mind? Oh, I, I, yeah, I, you know, going back to my dad, um, you know, the one thing I witnessed as a kid was that so many of the guys, that's all they had. They only had business. So, you know, my dad was big at making sure that I went to school and I did the things that I needed to do to kind of have that backstop of an education just in case the business didn't work out. And I ended up, yeah, I ended up going to, I ended up staying in school. I went to pharmacy school, graduated from that and kind of, you know, set my set my pace was pharmacy school and did a couple other odds and ends with some real estate development things and really just really just kind of walked in and out of walked in and out of the business just to you know make a few bucks here and there kind of keep my foot in it and that was it I I was yeah you know, I was always kind of proud of the fact that I was one of the few guys that used the business as opposed to the business using me and chewing me up and spitting me out so many. There's so many of the boys that I saw over the years from the old timers on out ended up in end up in trailers with, you know, diabetes and dying dying by themselves and um yeah. Not not good stuff. Very very few of the boys come out really unscathed and, you know, prepared for you know, long life afterwards, comfortably relaxed and enjoying the fruits of their labor in the ring. Sad to say, enjoying in, enjoying their later years. Uh, yeah, yeah. I had yeah. Uh, read here that you were a registered pharmacist, uh, and uh, that uh, uh, are you still doing that? No, I. Uh, well, I mean, I, I keep my pharmacy license up. I'm I'm pretty heavily involved in cancer uh, cancer care. Um, I have a have an or, have an organization with a group of docs that uh, looks at cancer in the older adults and we've got a lot of efforts and you know we've done a lot of things in research and educational type things again looking at cancer in people 65 and above people 65 and above represent better than 60 percent of all cancers um, yet in that group of individuals we don't capture a lot of information on how to treat them so there's a there's a big gap in information and knowledge on how to treat the population with most cancer which doesn't make a lot of sense so over the last 20 years, we've been working towards trying to do some things, and um, so we continue to we continue to work on it. It's called the Geriatric Oncology Consortium. Again, it's a group of physicians around the country who are considered the best of the best in both you know, geriatrics and oncology. In fact, we had a um, about two weeks ago we had a meeting up at the FDA and sat with all the people who approve on who, who approve cancer drugs and discussed with them how to make some changes in the system which eventually will have to come through Congress. It'll be a mandate from Congress to the FDA to give them the authority to push back on the drug companies and tell the drug companies how they're going to have to design their you know, their trials in order to get drugs to market. Um, it's pretty interesting stuff. I, I enjoy it. You know, I, I'm, I obviously have a, I obviously have a very strong um, uh, emotional interest in this. You know, my dad, uh, my dad passed away in, at 61 years of age from leukemia, for the complications of right. leukemia. And then my mom, 
then my mom just died at the end of last year uh, from uh, recurrent ovarian cancer. So, wow. uh, and, and like everybody else, I mean, we all have. Uh, if you talk to anybody, they they have family members and friends who are who have been sure. you know plagued by the series of the insidious diseases. Does uh, does your group have a website with uh, uh, dis- discussing who they are? Um, yeah, it's I mean it's it's kind of bare bones minimum. It's called the G the T H E dash G O C dot org. Okay. I think it's even I think it's even got my picture on there. Okay. Which well, I'm, I'm, I'm get, glad that information. I'm sure. Real quick. I hate sure to even say this. I hate to even say this after being serious like that, but I can't help myself. He could have made a lot more money in the dressing room with a pharmacy license than he could have ever made in the room. <laughs> yeah, I, I, was thinking, I was thinking that myself, Bobby, but I wasn't going to go there. You know, I just figured, you know, when Wahoo would open that tackle box in the dressing room and he didn't even have a pharmacy license. <laughs> okay, so... So, of course, I've got my stories, and I've got two more actually. I've got more than that, I'm going to tell you, too. So I'm on the bus. I'm on the bus in Japan. Sorry, Joel Deaton. i got to say i got to tell it. So I'm on the bus in Japan, and I had some cough medicine. It's called Tussinex. It's really strong. It's got oxycodone in it, but it's, it's, it was the only thing that would really truly quiet my cough. So I always made sure I had it with me. And uh, I take a little swig of this thing. I put it back in my bag, and all of a sudden I see Deaton behind me. He's like, uh, what's that? I said, well, it's some cough medicine I got. He goes, what is it? And I said, well, you know, it's pretty strong stuff. And he goes, oh, okay. So that, so that night I'm in my room, and all of a sudden the phone rings. I pick up the phone. Here's what I hear. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sure. <laughs> so, that, so, that's, uh, so that's story one. Now I'm, now I'm visiting. I can't remember who I was visiting, but I was in Dallas. I think I was in Dallas, and WWE was in Dallas, and uh, one of the Von Erics, I remember which one. Um, who's guy? Was this guy with no foot? They called him Foot Losers. Carrie. Gary. Gary. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. yeah. Sorry, sorry, Gary. Um, I think it was him. I'm not sure. So it may, it may not have even been him. But but we're on. So the the venue's. I don't remember where it is because I, I was just visiting. So the venue was pretty big. Actually, that's the time I went over and visited Paul Bosch's widow and his son who plays a phenomenal piano um so i'm in this venue i'm on one side of the venue and it's a big place and somebody's saying something to me about pharmacy and von eric was like on the other side of the building like a mile away and all of a sudden i see this guy all of a sudden i see this guy doing the doing the quick step towards me and it's him he's like uh hey uh so you're a pharmacist <laughs> I'm like, get the hell out of here. <laughs> I can believe that. Yeah, yeah you could have you could have come and, to Georgia and made a fortune just off Buzz Sawyer uh, and Tommy Rich. Oh, yeah, yeah, I could have made I could have made I made a fortune. Yeah, I could have ended up in jail. I would have been, <laughs> been a rich inmate. Yeah. yeah, the um, we were we were in a we were in Davie, Florida, and this was towards the latter part of. Uh, uh, crossover series, um, you know, the, the Sheik. It was the latter part of his career, and we had a uh, we had a doc on staff at at the rodeo arena in Davy, and we're we're working. And crossover comes back, and um, he gets this guy, and he's like, "Hey, you know, doc, come here." 
so Doc's like, okay. And he's, Custer starts telling him how he's got all these ailments and he, you know, he's, how he's hurting and stuff like that. And the, the guy's looking at him like, what the hell are you talking about? Well, the guy's a chiropractor. When, 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 when Kostro found out, when, when the Sheik found out he was a chiropractor, he chased him out of the dressing room, cussing him up, helping him down all over the place. Because he, he was like, I, I, I really don't, I, I want drugs, and you can't give me drugs, so you need to get the hell out of here now. We had a doctor in Atlanta that we had to, part of the contract in Atlanta was we had to have a doctor in the building, and we paid this guy. I'm thinking, this is in the 70s, we paid him 100 bucks a week, wasn't much, you know, for a doctor it wasn't much, but... The guy loved wrestling. He was a Japanese guy. He loved wrestling, and he would come, and all he ever brought was a prescription pad. He never, he never brought a medical bag. Never, you know, if something had happened, he couldn't have done anything but dial nine one one. But he always had that prescription pad, and guys would line up. It would look like a line at the candy store, and this guy would dispense just whatever you wanted. You just told him that he would write the prescription. But he did that. They did that for years in Atlanta on Friday night. Yeah. I, I saw him write one one night. Uh, just you know, it was just out there, and I mean, it wasn't secretive or anything. You know, it was no, uh, no. You just tell him what you wanted, and he'd write it. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't like you couldn't get stuff on the road, but you know what? It, what it ended up being was a downfall of a lot of guys. It's, yes, it did. Part of the reason yes, why. Yeah, part of the reason why my brother seems to call me all the time and says, "Hey, Joe, I don't know if you heard that you know, such and such is not with us any longer." Um, it got it got to a point. I don't know. This was maybe last year, or year before last. When I I told him to stop calling me. I said, I said you're like the angel of death. Every time you call me, you're telling me somebody's gone. And I told him I said if you ever hear it's me, definitely don't call me. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I won't tell you about Mr. Fuji. No, I already heard about Mr. Fuji. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah, I mean, not many not many of the old time guys are around, and that's. You know, getting back to the getting back to the walls, the old armory, and doing what we've tried to do here, and and are going to do is, you know, it is it's a way to kind of keep keep the legacy of that place alive and keep the you know, keep the memory of a lot of guys who are no longer with us. When we had a, and you you guys may know this, but when we had our event here, which was like a fan fest slash uh, fundraiser, back in June of Last year, so it's a year ago this June, uh, it was June 11th, that was the day that Dusty died. Yep. So, you know, really, I mean, it was a, it was not the great, it was not the way that we really wanted to drive the message home, but it really drove the message home. It was a, it was a strange and unusual day because uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Hart was going to come, he was going to do the whole mouth, mouth of the South thing up front, he had his megaphone, he was going to stand up front, he was going to take care of the crowd, and I, th- I thought that that was a great deal that he was going to do that, and he said, Jody, look, I'll get there early, I'll help you out. So he got there a little bit early, and then he looks at me and goes, hey, i got to go to Daytona, and I'll be back. I'm like, Daytona, Jimmy, that's that's across the state. By the time you get to Daytona, you're not going to turn around and come back. No, no, I'll be back. I'm like, you ain't coming back. I, 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 and I was pissed. I'm like, I can't believe you're, you know, you came here, and now you're going to turn around and leave. And uh, he, got a, he got a little ways away, and he calls me up. He goes, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I realized I'm – Screw it! I'm not going to Daytona. I'm coming back yet. And no sooner did he do that, that I got the call, and he got the same call that Dusty had just passed. Um, so very, you know, very, very poignant, very poignant day, very tough day for everybody. And um, you know, we had we had all the we had all the local news um, outlets 
show up in the parking lot, and of course it was for them it was it was uh, it was like a smorgasbord because they had all the old timers sitting there. Um, you know the punks came in, Terry and Dory. Uh, Terry's phenomenal. He's just you know, he's great. Anytime anytime I call him about anything, he's like Jody for you know for you and your brother and your dad. I love you guys. Uh, you know he loved my dad, so he uh, you know, he'll always pitch in. And Rocky Johnson was there and. Um, Bill Miller, who's no longer with us, he was there. And, uh, Buddy Colt, Buddy Colt had literally been in the hospital. We didn't think he was going to make it. He recovered, and he shows up, and he's on a walker, and he's coming into the building, and he stayed through the whole thing. And and uh, you know, eventually he kicked out of the whole thing. Now he now he looks better than he looked before. It's amazing. The guy's got, you know, the guy's got some serious genetics. Uh, I've talked to uh, Jerry about uh, head injuries uh, in professional wrestling. You know, that's been a lot of the news regarding uh, pro pro, uh, football players. But uh, uh, with your medical background, what do you think about uh, memory loss uh, in a lot of the old-timers related to head shots they've taken? Uh, What were you saying? (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah. Let's, would so, you say it's legit? Yes. Yeah, of course it's legit. Look, we, you know, we all we all got our bells rung. We all got our bells rung multiple times. You know, I, there there were times where I thought I was you know, I was sitting in the cathedral in Notre Dame, man. It was, <laughs> it was freaking brutal. Um, and I had my bell rung. I had my bell rung multiple times by very good friends of mine who would say, "Oops, sorry," you know. And I didn't even receipt them because. I knew they, you know, they messed up, and yeah, I had I had guys kick me square in the head, and um. Oh, so you work with Ox Baker? Ox was my manager. <laughs> hey, man, he could be on the floor ten feet away from you, and he still figure out a way to, to hurt you. Still, still, still <laughs> yeah, yeah. but but you know. When when I look back when I look back on the business, I always think about one thing that one guy said, and he is Steve Williams, Doctor Death. He said it all the time. He said it ain't ballet, mm-hmm. and it ain't it ain't ballet. You know you know what you're getting into. So I yep. mean, you know, is it is there a way to protect yourself? Of course there is. The way to protect yourself is you you learn how to work first yep. and foremost. But even if you but even if you work a good match, you know you worked against my dad. My dad, you didn't even know he was there half the time. Um, I, I worked against him. I had the opportunity to work against my own dad, which was kind of neat. And um, you know, I almost had to tell him, you know, stiff, stiffen up a little bit with me, so I know you're, I know where the hell you are. He he was just that easy. And so, you know, Bob Cook, um, you know, Bob Cook can throw a punch. You, you guys know Bob? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I... you know, but we I mean, we, tra- we trained Bob, and he's one of the, you know one of the guys we're probably most proud of. And he uh. Well, you can throw a punch. You can look like he takes your head off. Of course, if you, you know, if you take the punch, right, it looks like he tears your head off, and you don't feel it. So, you know, learn how to work. First and foremost, learn how to work. And even if you do, you're still going to get, you're still going to get potato once in a while. But it's it's a business that we choose. We go into it eyes wide open. We're grown men, and it bothers me when people, you know, after the fact go, oh, you know, somebody's responsible for this. Yeah, somebody is responsible. Not a man. Not anybody else. You're responsible. Yeah. Learn how to work. 
Yeah, it seems you, like uh, every other day you somebody else is is filing some sort of lawsuit, you know, over head injuries. That uh, and and now it's it's like uh, you know it's just a gravy train. Everybody thinking they're going to jump on these guys that are, are filing suit against McMahon that never even worked for him. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Um, you know, you, you have guys. I mean, never mind. You know, never mind the the. The, the head injuries, you've got guys, you know, you've got guys who have double knee replacements and double hips yeah. replaced. Guys who have both hips and both knees. Guys who have elbows and shoulders. And you know, if everybody sued who's incurred an injury in the course of their career, if every, you know, everybody, every, everybody could be suing. You know, I mean, I know guys, I know guys in this business who have, who have Parkinson's. It's prob- that probably stems from. You know, that probably stems from multiple head injuries over the course of years. Um, you know, sort of the sort of the whole Ali thing. They they accepted it, Doug. Yeah. Doug Furness. Um, yeah. It's hard. You know, it's hard to it's hard to watch progressive illnesses like that that may have been caused by something that you love doing that you you know that you made money at, but it's still part of the part of the business that you chose, part of the life that you chose. Well, guys, I'm gonna have to leave. I got I got to get up early in the morning. Joe, it's good hearing your voice again, and I hope everything goes well Pleasure. for you tonight down there with that weather, man. Thank you very much. Uh, All right, you, Jerry. Care. Be safe, my friend. Okay, guys. Talk to you later, you, bud. Good night. All right. So, are we is is that it for us? No, 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 no. Jerry always oh. he, he's he he has uh Jerry's got uh when the weather's not bad, he's probably got one of the greatest jobs of anybody from from the wrestling business. He rides up and down Tybee Island uh on a golf cart and and makes sure all the girls are uh their bikinis are, are properly done. I don't know what what is his official title. I never have asked. Him. I guess he works for the, the sheriff's he's department. The, he's the animal control officer, I think, is his title. Yeah, you know, for Tybee Island, and and basically is is the reason he's on the beach is he has to tell people they can't have their dogs on the beach. Yeah. <laughs> Tracks alligators. Just don't call him. An, just don't call him if an alligator comes ashore. No. <laughs> Or if, or if anybody's spotting a shark, don't call him. That's not the type of animal he controls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree uh, with 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 what what you were saying about the you know we, man, I loved what I did. I was as a kid, it was all I ever wanted to be. And fortunately, being in the right place at the right time, I got to live my dream. And yeah, if I could do it all over again, I'd pack my bag and be on the road tomorrow. Just, I, you know, everybody wants to blame everybody else for their problem, but we, you're absolutely right. We knew what we were getting into, and we we chose that life. And unfortunately, now at 61, my knees are screaming, and and uh, that's that's what it is. But it is what it is. Yeah, but and and you know, the flip side. I mean, it's a glass half full, glass half empty. That's a that's a glass his half empty part of it. Having the injuries that we have from doing this and you know I, I wrestled amateur for a long time i was with carl for seven years so i was doing submission style they you know they used to call it a, you know catch as catch can or um you know lancashire catch and you know it takes it that took its toll and 
the pro stuff took its toll. But alongside of that came, you know, the opportunity to sit with guys who were just, you know, just amazing. I mean, the stories that you got and the, you know, the, the places that you went and the things that you got to do and just, you know, you had all that together. It far, far offsets the bad stuff. Oh, I mean, yeah. I said, you know, I said, I mean, I was a kid. I was probably, I don't know, 16, 17 years old. I sat at a table with Carl Gotch, Billy Robinson, and Tony Charles, speaking of Tony Charles before. You know, and, and when I was, you know, when I was in that company, I didn't say anything. I, I shut my mouth because I wasn't, you know, I had nothing to offer, <laughs> but they did, you know, and they, and they offered me a look at their lines. And so I sat around a table with them. I, Carl had a, you know, Carl would have a big jug of what he called, you know, Dago Red, big Italian uh, jug of red wine. He'd have some cheeses and he'd have some bread and some, you know, some salami. And you'd sit there and you eat that stuff and drink some wine. He'd put a little, put the wine in some ice, put a little bit of water in it for me. And I'd sit there and I'd drink with them and just listen to their stories and listen to the lives that they led. And, you know, that, I mean, people would, (laughs) people never get the opportunity to do that stuff. And if they and if they had to pay for it, they couldn't pay enough. I hear you. Yeah. Well, there was uh, out of that that group that you were mentioning, there was another guy that uh, kind of falls in line amongst that group that spent a little bit of time in Florida. I don't know if you were ever around him or not. It was John Foley? Not really. He was. Uh, yeah. He was from I the may have, Wiggins I may have school. Run him. I may have I may have run across him in the day. I I, I don't. Well, I heard the name. I I don't remember if I ever met him or, or came across him. Um, there he were so his, many people coming in now. He and his son-in-law Ted Heath were the original British Bulldogs in the uh, in the seventies. I, I remember Ted. Yeah, that was John's. Uh, again, I'm, that I'm, was his son-in-law. But okay. uh, he was uh, he was he was actually Carl Foley was actually Carl Gotch's teacher in Wigan. Yes. Well, um, and there again, like you were talking about George McCreary, if you looked at him, you think he was just some guy that stumbled out of a bar, (laughs) and you wouldn't think he was. Billy Billy Joyce was a big guy in Wigan who really helped Carl along. Right. Um, There was a number of guys. There was a number of guys there, and Carl would tell you that all these guys, you know, looked like they needed a good meal, and they and they ate them alive at first. (laughs) And Carl was a Carl was a pretty big, strong guy who would just. you know, come through Belgium. He 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 was in a he wasn't in a concentration camp. He was in a work camp. Um, but you know, the 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 circumstances in a work camp were um, not as bad, but bad enough. So you know, very little food, very little eat. Um, no, you know, no niceties of life, and you were put to work by the Nazis. So I'm not. You know, I, I don't recollect right now how long he was in, but he was in long enough to really impact his life and, and make him sick. And he had a hard time recovering. And when he recovered from that, he ended up in the Olympics in, uh, uh, where did he, I'm not sure where he, where he even, I'm not sure where the Olympics were. I don't think it was, that wasn't Rome. Um, it was cause that would, that would have been in 48. I think he was, I no, think he was so, like, yeah. you know, yeah, he was, you know, he was multiple times, he was multiple times uh, national champion of, of Belgium and then went on to the Olympics. So he had, you know, he he had a pretty decent pedigree on the amateur side. And then when he came through Wigan, um, they ate him alive at first and he went, Oh crap. I better learn this stuff. 
And the the great thing about Carr, you know, for anybody who followed him was that, or knew him in the in the least, was that he had a, you know, here's another guy who just had a passion for wrestling, you know, not necessarily the business, but for wrestling. I mean, right. So you know, just the sport of wrestling, getting on the mat and doing what needs to be done. And he he ate, slept, dreamt, crapped professional wrestling his entire life. So he was always thinking, how can I do something better? How can I, how can I change something up and make it better? And he he literally took everything that he learned in Wigan and kind of put his own tilt on things and you know learned to tighten up things that were a little bit loose. And eventually he was, um, you know, he was he. He was something special, and in Japan he was referred to as Kamasama, or you know, the God of Wrestling. Right. And they didn't take that lightly. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like somebody being called the God of Wrestling here in the states, or you know, the Man of a Thousand Holds, or something like that. Like my brother was, um, you know, that was just somebody throwing a name in there. But it was truly that the Japanese people looked at him and went, you know, you're, you're the best of the best. And he was, you know, and he was responsible for really helping morph Japanese professional wrestling into what it became, you know, throughout the, you know, throughout the seventies and the eighties and, and onward. And then, you know, then the whole mixed martial arts stuff and pancreas and, you know, the whole shoot fighting thing that came out of Japan was all, it was all him. So. I'm trying to think. I, I, I saw a video of course. It was not to do with his, his wrestling training, but his conditioning. He did something that was unusual and I don't remember exactly. It was something about a pole. He it was either some sort of climbing a pole or or doing something that that he was the only well, one. He didn't, that... he, I know he didn't dance. I know I know he. Didn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't imagine that. I, I certainly can't imagine anybody putting uh, a dollar down in front of his shorts. So. Well, but, they, uh, they they would have lost it. They would have lost their hand. They probably would have lost their dollar. Too. Carl would probably kicked the crap out of a man and kept their dollar. <laughs> But what uh, did, did uh, <clears throat> he did a lot his, of amazing things? Yeah, the one, his, the one uh, thing he did. So we all did free squats. You know that was a that was a big thing. Free squats or Hindu squats, and you guys probably have seen people do them. Um, Carl did nine thousand in four and a half hours. So he sat there for four and a half hours in one place gee. and did nine thousand squats. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, it's sort of like um, 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 come on, uh, Lanny's dad, um, Angelo Papa with the sit up. Angelo yeah. Papa. Yeah, and his setups, and I mean, you know, some of the old timers, man, they they were uh, they were forced to be reckoned with. And Carl, you know, Carl was just that. He did he did an amazing number of squats. He could hold a bridge for half an hour. I mean, he did he just he just did a lot of stuff. <laughs> but more important than that, he was a you know, he was a he was a good, honest man who loved who loved wrestling. And the one thing that really struck me that most people don't know about is that you know you get you get everybody trying to. You get everybody trying to make a buck out of things. Um, Carl never did that. Uh, much to his, much to his dismay at times, um, and you know his pocketbook, he never did that. I mean, Carl would take. You know, he always said, "If you have a heart, he'll give you the rest." So as long as you had guts and you can get on a mat and give him everything that you had, he would give you the he would give you the endurance and the flexibility and the agility and you know all the other things you needed to be a good to be a good mat guy but he never charged i mean he he, from all the japanese boys that he ever trained to all the guys here in the states to everybody that ever came to visit him he would give of his heart and soul and time and effort and never charge him a dime it was pretty uh 
pretty admirable way to live your life. Not great for your bank account, but he did okay. You know what? What was nice about what was nice about Carl was that, or what was nice for Carl was the Japanese people really embraced him, and the Japanese promotions, at least in the early stages, took good care of him. So if it wasn't for Japan, he probably would have ended up a penniless and a, or a pauper. But um, because again, he he just you know, if you were somebody who wanted to learn how to shoot, you wanted to get on a mat and learn how to really take care of yourself, he'd he'd bring you in, embrace you, take care of you, feed you. You know, he he bought me my first, and he didn't need to do this. You know, when when my dad approached him about taking care of me, I was working with um um come on little uh little Japanese referee um Masao Hattori. Yeah, and Tiger Masao had just. Yeah, Masao had just won. He just took third place in the world's. I think it was down in Brazil. So he was a, you know, he was a pretty, pretty high up amateur at the time. He was about 127, 128 pounds. Um, I was a young kid. I was 14 years old, and you know, he took me under his wing, and he was teaching me. This was after John Heath had worked with me for a while. You know, did you guys know John? Had a Sarasota. Coach John Heath, yeah. yeah, 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 great guy. Also, good guy for championship wrestling. So. um Carl came and my dad said, "Hey, would you, you know, would you take care of Jody?" Carl had known me since, again, since '62, '63 when I was a little kid, and Carl decided to go ahead and take me and um, train me for about a year before he really even started talk teaching me how to wrestle. He said, "Look, I'm going to make sure you have, you know, you have that foundation that everything else gets built on. So we're not even going to worry about wrestling. I'm going to get you in shape. I'm going to toughen you up. I'm going to make sure that you can take anything, and then I'll start to teach you how to wrestle." And that took about a year. In the process. Um, he bought me my first pair of boots from Carl and Hildegard, just about 20 bucks. I think it was like 1995 for a pair of boots from K and H. And he said, I'm going to buy these for you and I'm going to give them to you. He says, if you stop wrestling, he says, I'm going to take these. I'm going to beat the shit out of them with you until all I have left in my hands. He said, until all I have left in my hands are the eyelets, you know, those little metal things. And I, uh, of course I, I didn't give him the chance to do that. I, I wore those boots out and probably wore Another half a dozen pairs out. <coughs> so I'm running out of stories. Uh, let me ask you this. Has anybody approached you about uh, uh, writing a book, either about uh, your experiences with uh, your brother or uh, about uh, your dad or your career in the, the wrestling business? Yeah, I've talked to a few guys about it. Some of the guys that I've talked to about it, I've, you know, they put a lot back on me, and I, I just – I've I've had a hard time, you know, kind of collecting enough time together to be able to do something like that. I'm, you know, like everybody else, I I lead a busy life, so it's just hard. I would really need somebody else to dig in and then just be able to, you know, kind of augment what they do. Um, I've talked to guys like Scott Teal who have done a you know serious number of books. Scott's interested. He said, "Let me get." You know, one of the things he said to me is, "Let me get you know, let me get square with some of my stuff. Maybe I'll come back around to you." Here's what I would like to do. I would like to see somebody take on the take on the job of going to all the different people that my dad excuse me that my dad had influence over. And and the funny thing is one of the guys who did want to do a book started some stuff and then he sent it to me. He did he did this he did this uh you call it a Gantt chart. He, you know, it's a, sort of a flow chart. He did a he did a chart of all the people that my dad, my brother and myself have trained. And then he kind of showed some of the people that have been trained by some of those people. And when that was in front of me, I had one of these, you know, 
holy crap moments that you only get when you see things, you know, in the totality of what it was. Because you don't think, I don't think that way. I mean, I don't ever, you know, somebody will mention somebody's name. I go, oh, yeah, we trained him. But I don't ever think in my head, (laughs) half the time I don't even think in my head, but I don't think in my head about, I don't think in my head about how expansive that list is and all the different people that we and so I'm looking at this thing and I'm I'm you know I'm seeing X Pack, you know, one two three kid, X Pack, Mark Miro, um, Tugboat, Kane, I mean, you know, Bob Cook, uh, you know, the the list went and I started thinking to myself, oh, oh my God, look at all the people that you know we and, and especially my dad had a hand in bringing along and helping to achieve their you know their life dreams and and you also the nice thing about it with my dad was is he didn't care about money either you know like uh norman smiley you guys know norman oh yeah <laughs> he used to call him black magic back in the day so um you know norman Norm will tell you i guess i don't remember what the exact amount was but you know i guess i guess he paid my dad a little bit early on and then he went to my dad and said look larry um you know things are a little tough or whatever and um, my dad did what he always does, which is he looked at Norman. He goes, "Ah, you know, don't worry about it, kid. Just keep coming." And so I guess Norman never paid my dad another dime the rest of his life. And uh, so we, we were at lunch, and we were at lunch, and Norman had mentioned this to me beforehand. And so I stood up, and I was accepting something on my dad's behalf. And I said, "Oh yeah, by the way, Norman, when my dad died, he said the last thing he wanted me to do was collect money that you owed him because you didn't pay him a damn dime when he was alive." <laughs> But I mean, Kane, you know, uh, Glenn lived with my dad in, you know, in a little back bedroom in this tiny little nothing of an apartment where my dad didn't charge him crap for living back there. And see, it was just, he he was a neat guy that way. And, he, and, and when you talk to all these boys, they will all tell you the same thing, which is kind of tough as a son to hear this because you don't want to share your dad. But it's also pretty rewarding and, you know, kind of heart filling. They'll all tell you that he was a second dad to them. You know that he taught them not just being in the business, but he taught them life. And he, you know, he kind of set their, you know, he kind of set up their path to being a, you know, to being good people and doing things the right way. And it was, it wasn't just wrestling. Um, again, you know, as a son, it's kind of lousy to have to share your dad with a, you know, with thirty, forty, fifty, sixty, some other guys. <laughs> but you know, when when things when things come to pass and you look back on it, you think, well, that's you know, he was a he was a he was a man for others, which is what they used to say when I went to Jesuit High School. You want to be a man for others. And he was a he was truly a man for others. Your dad was pretty close with uh, Jake Grove too, wasn't he, Hans Mortier? Oh yeah, he um yeah he looked at Hans, he looked at he looked at Jake as a sort of like an older brother, I guess. Uh, he was he was in awe of him. He just thought, you know, he was he was just such a worldly man. The guy spoke. I don't know, seven languages, you know, spoke, read, and wrote, you know, just, just a, you know, just a, just a man of the world. And my dad, you know, my dad thought the world of him. And at the end, when my dad was in the hospital, you know, before he went into a coma, he was, he was in, uh, you know, he was undergoing chemo and he was at Moffitt Cancer Center. He was there for, you know, months. Um, Jake came into town and Jake wasn't, Jake wasn't healthy any longer. He wasn't doing real well. He was an older gentleman. And he sat there and he sat there and he sat there and he, you know, stayed by my dad's side. And, you know, they just had this special bond, man. They were brothers. And uh, finally my dad just looked at him and said, Jake, go home. 
you know, you got to go home. You can't stay here any longer. You know, I, I know you care. And so that was the only time I saw Jay cry. You know, he, he walked he walked down the hall, gave me a hug, you know, told me he loved me and wished me best and got on a plane, took off, and that was the last time he he'd seen my dad. But he, you know, at the risk of his own health, he just sat there day after day after day just looking after my dad, not doing anything. You know, again, finally my dad just turned to him and said, yeah, look, I know you care. I know you love me. Get the hell out of here. You know, you need to take care of yourself. And that was one thing that was one thing that impressed me about Bruno too. You know, I, I I didn't know Bruno well. I knew him from when I was a kid. Again, I was, you know, was six, seven, six, seven, eight years old when I was around him. But um, you know, when my dad was in the hospital, Bruno called him constantly just to check up on him. You know, make sure he was okay. <coughs> special, there's a special something amongst most of the boys. I mean, you know, it's obviously you have your you have your things out there that aren't. aren't you know, that aren't the best of the best, but in general, there's there's bonds that are made. You, you know, uh, oh, yeah. you're on tour with guys. You know, you're there week after week after week, and you're looking to you're looking to people to go work out with and hang out with and go eat with, and well, that's how Furness and I became such good friends. Because you know, it's, it's all you got each other on the road. Yeah, just what uh, Bobby has said uh, a dozen times. It, it's it's funny that that we were around these guys, you know, for so many years and everything, and it took us all getting out of the business to realize how much we loved each other. Yeah, yeah. I saw I saw Joel Deaton for the first time last year. It had been a while since I'd seen him. And at least you know we we don't talk all the time, but we you know we we connect now and again. Um, Billy Black, who used to be over in Japan with us, great guy, phenomenal worker. Um, you know, we just kind of reconnected. So, uh, it, you're right. It, it doesn't it doesn't hit you until later how important all these guys were in your life, because um, you you share a lot of you share a lot of pretty neat stories with them. Yeah. Plus, if you, you're in in there in the ring with them, you, you you've got to you know trust them to take care of you and you to take care of them. I mean, that's what the business was about. You give exactly. a guy your body. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Well, I know you do. You get together with the uh, the Tampa group. I know they get together every other month or so, um, or maybe it's monthly. Um, I know Dottie Curtis is involved, and and Brian Blair, and uh, a lot of those guys. Are are you able to to uh, get with those those guys much? Yeah, I get, get over there. I, I I get over there most most of the events. Um, it's called the Legends Lunch. Right, uh, which always which always gets me going too, because uh, if if I start talking about everybody and, and the whole legend thing, I just shake my head. Everybody's a legend now. Um, <laughs> but there are, that's right. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I, I just yeah. Um, well, the only and the only thing that bothers me about that. Look, you can call yourself whatever you want to call yourself, but you know if it if it takes away from the guys who are truly legend, that's what bothers sure. me. There's a, you know, there's only a select yeah. there's only a select few that I can that I consider legendary in this business and they aren't any of the guys who call themselves legends. Um and while I'm on that while I'm on that, the other thing that really rakes me is all the guys who have ever held a belt who truly believe that they won that belt. Yeah. That they held a title. Yeah. Okay. That we we'd be on here for an hour with me Rand and Raven. Um <laughs> so I do so so I do go, 
I do go, and I, you know, and, and I go mostly to pay my respects to the guys like Buddy Colt, and uh, you know, and, and Jerry Briscoe, who's just a phenomenal guy. And Steve Kern, Steve Kern goes. I just, I think the world of Steve. So, you know, there are a few guys that go. Bill Miller used to go all the time. Um, Dottie's there. I always love seeing Dottie. I grew up again. I grew up with her and Don. Um, I go out of respect for the people who really who did everything that made it possible for anybody nowadays to do what they do and make the kind of money that they make. Nothing would, nothing would have happened. You know, all these guys that really did this stuff in Florida set the stage for everything that went on. I mean, you know, it all, it all turned into what it turned into because of, you know, these pockets of regional wrestling that were just phenomenal. And and Florida was, you know, Florida was right up there. It wasn't the only, you you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the only phenomenal territory, but it was one that really stands out because they just had, they just had so many good guys go through here. Yeah, I mean you can take, uh, and I know you that that you see them too. That uh, Barry Rose's Facebook page that, that you know he does the pick a card, you know every day, and just you go through, you know that that time period uh, from the early '60s to the late '70s, and just look at the names of that came through there. I mean, there were guys. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I grew up uh, in uh, the Gulf Coast area, so that was the territory that I grew up seeing guys. And and you know, I'm thinking these guys that were big names in that in that small territory, and here they, you know, they're opening card down, you know, in Florida and everything. Guys like Greg Peterson and, and Dick Dunn and, and stuff like that. And and that's that's no knock on them. I'm sure they probably made more money working for Eddie than they did working on top, you know in the Gulf Coast, but uh, just just the the names of the people who came through there. And then uh, Georgia, once the, uh, you know, TBS went on went on the cable and everything and everybody was fighting to get in here to Georgia to, to get that national exposure, um, you know, in the late 70s and, and early 80s is, is, you know, Georgia kind of uh, became what, what Florida was as far as the national uh hotbed of everything and there was a lot of talent shared because you know at one time uh you know eddie had points in the, in the atlanta office and uh yeah you know, lester welch and uh you know that all that that you know they were they were like stepbrothers georgia and florida and, and swapped a lot of talent but uh you know just you just think of the guys you know back in the early 70s a lot of the guys you named Steve Kern came through here you know Ricky Steamboat uh, a lot of guys started uh in here you know young uh getting you know their their feet wet and then going on to bigger things we had uh Bob Backlund on the show with us um a couple of months ago you were talking about doing sit-ups <clears throat> he was another one that you couldn't, you know. He just couldn't yep. wear him out, except for uh, Bobby feeding him popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I rode with him a little. I'm not a lot, but I rode with him a few times here in Florida. He had a, I'm not mistaken, he had like an old bed or something like that, and I, you know, I ride with him to a few towns. He's he's a good guy. Um, yeah, he was, he was well, you know, he was, again, legitimate, you know, he had a legitimate, phenomenal amateur background. He was built off of, uh, you know, built off of being a real wrestler. There were, yeah. there were, there were, you know, there were a ton of guys like that who people didn't even know. I mean, Bob, yeah, everybody knew, but there were a ton of guys in the business who were tough guys that 
people had no clue about. Some guys exactly. just tough guys. Not not yeah. that they even wrestled. They were just, you know, they were the guys that even the wrestlers wouldn't want to mess with. You know, the, the you know you got you, know, you got all the Samoans who were, um, you know, renowned for. I mean, their their wrists are bigger around than my leg. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we um, we've been we've we've been lucky to, you know, as a family, we've been lucky to have some have some play in this business for a fairly long period of time between my dad and my brother. And, you know, again, I just did it. I just did it part-time, but my brother had a really good run. My dad, my dad was in it for 30 years and my brother's been in it since he was a kid. So. Is Ding still active doing, doing. No, 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 no. He's well, I mean, he's active in the business. He's not active in the ring. That's what I mean. Is he, he's still involved with the business. Yeah. He's with, he's with me, man. He's one of the producers for WWE. He's still doing that. And he'll be doing that, you know, probably until he stops doing it because he's, you know, that's all he's ever known. He's he's only ever known the business. He's only ever known doing what he does. And he's got a, he's got a good head for it. You know, he, um, you know, he, he helps, he helps put together, you know, sort of the programs and he's been part of the writing team at times. And, um, yeah, I didn't, I, you know, when, when he was a little kid, I would have never guessed he would have gotten as good as he got, but he, he put in his. He, he paid his dues. When did well, he uh, first go? To, when did he first go to work for McMahon? Uh, when they came, well, they came out of WCW. Um, so they were in WWE. Were they? I think I'm trying to remember if they. I forget the sequence. I, if they were in ECW first and then went to WCW, I think they were in WCW and then they got pulled over as the. I think they called them the Radicals. When they pulled him on over to WWE, which would have been my brother, uh, my brother Eddie Guerrero, Chris Benoit, and Perry Saturn at the time. But I don't, I'm not sure what that year was. I'm not sure what year that was. I mean, that was right as, I guess WCW was um, ready to meet its demise. Or did Vince, right. didn't Vince buy it? Yeah, yeah, he bought yeah. he bought the rights to everything. So all those guys Turner came up. over, and they, you know, and Vince then kind of got behind, at least partially, started getting behind, you know, some of the junior, you know, the the lighter, the lighter guys, the smaller guys. Everybody wants to say, on the, you know, some of these guys are still pretty decent size. I mean, my brother was always you know, two fifteen, two twenty, so it's not like he's, not like, not like he's a string bean, and he always, you know, always kept himself in good shape, looked good. So, um, but you know, compared to compared to Kane and, and Taker and all these other folks. Yeah. You know, they were small guys. Um, and then, you know, then they started putting on these matches that just blew the house away. Um, especially, especially when you, when you get, you know, when you get my brother in with Mysterio or, or Mysterio in with Guerrero, Guerrero in with Benoit, mm-hmm. you know, there was, there wasn't a night that was anything other than you know, five freaking stars. And they worked hard. Yeah, they did. They did. I'd I'd much rather watch them work than Kevin Nash, who was famous for calling your brother a what was a a, a vanilla midget. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking. Well, you know, I, I told you, Stan, Stan Hansen thought we were Hansen called us midgets, but it was okay because it was Stan, and he's one of my best friends in the business. So I, I I could take it from Stan. I had no problem in that. 
<laughs> well, if when, I ever uh, if I ever Doug hear of, an, of one of the uh, the WWE guys uh, getting their dentures stomped on, I know who came up with that idea and where he got it from. That, that was, <laughs> I, I do not know. I do not know of anybody else who ever did that before my dad. And that was probably one of the hottest angles. All, he all he of did it in every territory he ever worked, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he didn't. He he didn't. He didn't need his teeth much because he used to leave them out all the time. Now imagine, you know, imagine you're a little kid, um, you know, four or five years old, four or five six years old, and your dad is a five ten, but he's two sixty five. He's got a twenty inch neck. He's got nineteen, you know, twenty inch arms. Um, my dad was a my dad was a big man. He had a he shaved his head. He had a forelock of hair that came down, sort of like Bolo Mongo, whatever that whatever that guy's name was. And then he had a Fu Manchu going into a um, he had a Fu Manchu going uh, going into a uh, into a goatee, and he was just scary as hell. And when and when he'd be in the house, sometimes he would drop his front teeth down so they would come out of his mouth and they would kind of sit <laughs> down low, and he and he'd come at me. I was, I was, I was scared of, I was scared of crap of him. I mean, I was scared to death of him for you know the first I don't know five six years of life. Yeah, but he was a, but he was a very, but when he wasn't mean, he was a very sweet guy. <laughs> yeah, he was, uh, he was so hated in Florida that that. Uh, when he turned babyface, that made him even even more popular, and that was always the way it seemed in the business back in those days. the The bigger heel you were when you when you made a babyface turn, they they loved you that much more. Yeah, and the amazing thing about my dad's babyface turn was, and he would he would say this to everybody: he never changed. Right. Nope. He he never changed the way he worked. He stayed. He did all the same shit. He yep. just became a babyface. Yeah, you know, it was just time for him. I mean, everybody, everybody loved, everybody hated him so much that they loved hating him that he became loved just because he was hated so much, and and he never changed the way he worked. It was the strangest thing, and it just it just clicked. I mean, my dad, you know, my dad in the height of his being a heel could walk into areas of Tampa that were considered you know sort of no fly zones because of you know different racial or different cultural type makeups of the area, nobody would go, you know, whites wouldn't go into the, this particular area or whatever. My dad could go anywhere. You know, he was in a, he was in a predominantly black area of town when he was in his heyday. And again, he was, he was most hated villain around this place. And somebody ran in front of his car and he had to stop his car and he got out. And all of a sudden all these people kind of started surrounding him, and he was a little nervous. And then somebody realized who he was. And they're all coming up to him like Malenko, he you know, and slapping him and you know, I'm not like nice slapping him, all excited. <coughs> if it had been anybody else in the time, you know, in that era, um, they, they would have been killed, <laughs> you know. But yeah. My dad, my dad just yeah, he just had, he had a way in town. Um, and there are still people today who, again, they're you know people look back to those days and those are their fondest memories. The Ted Webb, who's uh, was one of the radio personalities here in town on 970. Yeah, he was a. Uh, I, I think he sold Pepsi's or Cokes at the at the at the Armory back in the day. <laughs> yeah, he can go on and on about how how much that whole era meant to him. Um, 
and there's a ton of people here in this town who now, you know, make up the upper crust of this town who, again, back in the day, there was nothing here. There was no, you know, there was no football. There was no baseball. There was no nothing. There was championship wrestling for Florida, Tuesday nights of the Armory. And they had in the paper, you know, they had the, uh, they had the results in the legit paper afterwards. Everybody yeah. looked to see who won that, you know, who won last night. And people went and they believed it. I mean, they, they, they were transformed, transfixed. They were, you know, they were, they were, they were, for that moment in time, for those couple, three hours in this place that they sweated, you know, they sweat, they sweated to death and they believed. We were in Miami right. Beach one time and uh, some lump, some old lady comes up to my dad and she goes, you know, old Jewish lady, she, she comes up, she says, I know you, you know, your name is Larry Simon, you're from New Jersey, <laughs> you know, you're not a nut. And she's going on and on and on, my dad's like, yeah, get away, old lady. I think he kicked her legs out from underneath her just to stay with the um, In fact, I think it was my grandmother. And so she, uh, <laughs> so he comes out. He comes out. And he wrestles that night, and he looks over the side. And she's I don't know. She's like standing on her chair. And she's waving her cane, and she's yelling at the top of her lungs, "Kill him! You know, kill that! Kill! Kill Malenko! Kill that Russian son of a bitch!" <laughs> because even though she knew. She stopped knowing. For those few hours, sure. she stopped knowing. She stopped. Yeah. We've talked yeah, a lot about the believability what? factor on this show. Yeah. 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 It um, and, and you know, and, and sort of going to what we were talking about earlier, which is the you know the things that you had to do back there to get to back the believability piece. What you had to do to believe to be believable, you didn't have to do you know the double back twisting tucks off of the top rope. No. Um, it got. It was so different that you know. Again, one of the most memorable matches in my head is that, and it wasn't just in my head because it was a real match. I, the memory is in my head. Um, Miami Beach Convention Center. I was standing. I was standing in the back, looking out with Lou Thes beside me, who um, said a lot of nice, not nice things about my dad because he didn't. If you weren't a, if you weren't legit like he was. He, Kind of, and my dad was kind of goofy sometimes. He did Three Stooges shit. So Lou didn't think much of that, and he said some things. Anyway, not to talk bad about anybody who's not with us. Um, so my dad's out in the middle of the ring, and Johnny Valentine's out there. And you guys remember Valentine. I mean, he had oh, to sure. talk about him. Just his look. I mean, he would walk into a room, and, you'd, you know, you'd, you'd, soil your, you'd soil yourself. So my dad, my dad and Valentine are in the ring, and they're squared off. And, and you can just feel the pulse of that crowd. And it's just building and building, but they haven't touched each other. They circle, they threaten, they rear back, you know, they do their stuff, but they don't touch each other. And the crowd's, the crowd's boiling over. Not, you know, they're not reacting, but you can just, you know, you can just feel it. It, it was like, it was, it, there's electricity. It's almost like, you know, the, 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 the earth is quaking, you know, you're not having an earthquake yet, but you're feeling those tremors, and the the house is just doing that, and everybody's, and they they held that they held that place like that for about, I don't know, probably close to ten to fifteen minutes, somewhere between ten to fifteen minutes, without laying a hand on one another, and then all of a sudden they hook up, and then all of a sudden a couple things, and then Valentine leans my dad, my dad's outside of the ring, brings him back over the top of the rope. You know, leans him back over the top of the rope, and he drops that big forearm hammer like he used to do. And you could not hear yourself think. 
Yeah. That was it. I mean, that was pretty much the match. I don't remember much more of the match because I don't think there was much more to it. So they, you know, they probably put on about 20 minutes worth of, of, just standing there between standing there and a couple of, you know, a couple of big hammers and my dad selling and doing whatever and then the finish whatever they, I don't even remember what the finish was, and I just remember Lou, you know, Lou standing next to me just looking and he had this, he had this kind of look on his face like, yeah, that's great, but speaking speaking of finish. Speaking of finish, Joe, it's been great, but we're down to about 30 seconds here. <laughs> yep, got to go. Well, we appreciate you uh, you joining us, and, and uh, we'll have to have you back on. This has been great. This has been absolutely great. And, and you know, congratulations on uh, what you're doing in the real world yes. as far as your your work with cancer stuff. That's phenomenal. And, and you need uh, to get that book, man. You've just got too much information there, I tell you what. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you, guys. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night, guys. Next week. We thank you for listening to this broadcast, a production brought to you by the GWH Radio Network. Stay tuned to GeorgiaWrestlingHistory.com for the latest information on upcoming events and more. As always, we thank you for your continued support. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.